Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Native American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Annabella Breck, and today we'll be talking to Claudio Sant about his new book, Unworthy Republic, The Dispossession of Native Americans and the Road to Indian Territory. Claudio Sant, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Claudio, I wonder if you could kick things off today by telling us a bit about yourself. Yes, I uh, was born and raised in California in San Francisco, and I went east for my uh, education. I got my BA at Columbia University, and then I went on to do my graduate work with Peter Wood at Duke University. And, uh, and I've been working on Native American history ever since. I, I got inter- interested in the subject. Originally, I had actually applied to graduate school to work on Renaissance history. And uh, in the first semester, ended up switching to American history. But I was very much interested in working in a language, doing research in a language other than, than English. And so I started looking into the Spanish records and the, the Spanish borderlands, spent a summer down in Mexico City, looking into Spanish Florida. And it, I quickly realized working through those records that we call this region, the Spanish borderlands, but that the majority of the people were indigenous. There were never more than 3000 Spanish speaking people in the Eastern Spanish borderlands so present day Florida and Alabama, part of Mississippi. And there were well over a hundred thousand native peoples there in the 18th century. So, so that's really how I got, interested in, in Native American history. Great, thank you. And how did you come to write Unworthy Republic? I had finished my most recent uh, book, West of the Revolution, and uh, just as I had finished writing and sent it off to the publisher, my aunt sent me a cache of letters that my grandfather had left. He was a refugee from Hungary, came to the United States in, in 1938. And uh, he was an amateur archivist. As I discovered, he kept everything. So I, I had this enormous collection of letters. They were all in Hungarian. I had to have them translated. But uh, it's a remarkable collection of documents in, in that he, as I said, he kept everything and he has this correspondence with his parents and his 
brother and sister in Hungary through 1943. Hungarian Jews were the last to be deported in the spring of 1944. So it's, it's this amazing insight into the experiences of Jews in Hungary and his family, more specifically in Hungary in, in the early 1940s. But reading through the material got me thinking about the deportation that occurred 100 years earlier, closer to my current home in Athens, Georgia. And that, of course, is, is Indian removal. And it's a subject that, of course, I had long known about. I've been teaching Native American history for 25 years. But it had it's the most familiar subject i think in in native american history reading through that correspondence got me to think about how about the differences in the way we talk about these two deportations there's a sense of inevitability with when we talk about deportation in the 1830s and of course we use a certain kind of language that that um we talk about Indians and warriors and chiefs and tribes. Um, we don't talk much about the administrative component and the logistics of administration. So, I, so I mean, in short, I began thinking about all these differences and, and thinking about how unsatisfied I was with the current literature on Indian removals and, and how we focus on on the kind of tragedy of the story, but we underscore that so much that I think the story, the, the sense of inevitability takes over. So that kind of got me interested in the subject and I delved into it and found all kinds of, of interesting material. And, and now I have a book. <laughs> Section one casts us right into some of the ideological origins of Indian removal in the Southeast. We're introduced to Isaac McCoy, an idealist whose idea of forced relocation was one of benevolence and providence, and American slaveholders who saw removal as a means of expanding wealth produced by enslaved labor. Can you talk about how both strains of pro-removal ideology become integral to federal policy? Yes, it's this... Obviously, Native peoples had been removed since Europeans first set foot on the continent, but there was something particular about the removal that was launched in the 1830s, and that is that it was a kind of, it was a formal state-sponsored initiative to move, to remove every single Native person east of the Mississippi River. At least that was the goal. And, and so historians had long argued that there was this continuity between Jeffersonian Indian policy, that is this policy to civilize Native peoples, and Jacksonian Indian policy, the policy to remove peoples. But, but I think there is this disjuncture that we, we have lost sight of. So in the 1820s, there is this growing desire on the part of Southern states and especially Georgia to eliminate Native peoples. And this is driven largely by the desire to expand 
cotton production across the South. Most of the fertile lands in Georgia already belonged to landers and already had enslaved peoples working on them by the mid to late 1820s. But Georgia planters were casting their eye westward across the Chattahoochee River onto the the, um, so-called Black Belt, this this crescent of, of rich and fertile soil that arcs across the South. And they were looking at this land and imagining all of the potential profits to be made. So so planters and planter politicians began pressuring the federal government to remove Native Americans from this part of the country. Now, to do so, they needed to get a bill through Congress. And and few Northern politicians were willing to go along with this plan for lots of different reasons. some of them admirable, some of them less admirable. Planner politicians recognized that they needed to form an alliance with uh, missionaries. And in particular, they found a man, a Baptist missionary named Isaac McCoy, who had spent 15 years proselytizing to Indians in the West. And McCoy was extremely naive about politics. Uh, he was dedicated to the cause, and he became the kind of front person for this movement, this developing movement in the 1820s to remove Native Americans. So there, it, it's at once a very cynical policy when planters are talking about it, but then on the flip side, you have these naive reformers like Isaac McCoy, who sincerely believe that this is the best thing for Native peoples, that the only way to save them, as McCoy says over and over again, is to move them west of the Mississippi River. In Section 2, these interests make their way to Washington, where proposals for an unprecedentedly swift, massive, and aggressive removal of Indigenous communities from east of the Mississippi is hotly debated. Meanwhile, as these policies are being implemented, Native peoples from northern Ohio to western Georgia refuse to budge. What does a comparison between northern and southern removal show us about indigenous responses to early removal attempts and the stakes that these policies and prospects established for American politicians? One of the remarkable things is is. Uh, recognizing the diversity of Native peoples living within the boundaries of the United States in the 1820s, and also how savvy and well-informed they are about American politics. So there's this extraordinary group of Native American politicians and intellectuals at work in the 1820s and into the 1830s, fighting against Indian removal. Now, some of them suggest early on that perhaps the best thing to do is to cut their losses and escape west across the Mississippi. But the vast majority of them insist that they want to stay where they are. And they have all kinds of of reasons for making this argument. One of the simplest is that they had lived on these lands for generations and generations. And uh, 
And they also had very intimate relations often with the surrounding white populations. And they said this over and over again, we're comfortable where we are, we have good relations with our neighbors and, and we want to stay here. So, so both in the North and the South, you see indigenous politicians and John Ross is, is the most famous of them, the, the Cherokee principal chief at the time. They lobby in Washington. They end up in the late 1820s. They meet with Andrew Jackson in the White House. They they encourage their missionary allies who to to fight against Indian removal. And so, when the issue is before Congress, um, they have uh, these indigenous politicians has have already built a fervent opposition among the American public. And that becomes critical as the bill is debated in the spring of 1830. There really is a very fervent opposition among white Americans. And in fact, Indian removal is the single most contentious issue to come before Congress uh, since the founding of, of the Republic. And and there are hundreds and hundreds of petitions that flood Congress signed by thousands and thousands of Americans saying that if you, if Americans, if Congress passes this bill, uh, it will violate the very principles of the American Republic. At the end of the day, of course, the act passes in the House by a mere five votes out of 199 cast. So it just barely squeaks through. And this is in a Congress which is overwhelmingly Jacksonian. And, and that su should suggest to us just how controversial of an issue this was in 1830. Section three lays bare the atrocities of the early stages of removal. Poor preparation and negligence on the federal government's part collide with a cholera outbreak that devastates communities from the Great Lakes to the Red River. But Native experiences of such devastations are not all the same, even across the Southeast. Can you elaborate on the range of experiences Native peoples face and the means of survival and resistance they pursue? Yeah, so once the once the bill is once the bill becomes law in May of 1830, the federal government mobilizes. And the no one really had a sense of the logistics of, of what this would take to move 80 to 100,000 people hundreds of miles west. These They were moving people over uh, roads that would become flooded in the spring. Some of the territory that they would have to cross had no roads constructed, so the federal government would have to to carve out roads, build bridges. Um, a, a number of the rivers became unnavigable at certain times of the year. So the logistics of the operation were extraordinarily difficult, and this was for a a relatively small state, even in the early nineteenth century. Now, even today, we know that these kinds of humanitarian operations are difficult for the United States to undertake. It, 
it's one thing to move 10 or 20,000 troops from here to there, but it's an entirely different kind of operation to feed and clothe um, men, women, and children when you're dealing with um, sick people and the elderly and infants and pregnant women. So the, the federal government goes into this uh, into this undertaking with very little sense of exactly how it's going to accomplish moving all these people. And it quickly becomes uh, overwhelmed. So Native peoples are on the receiving end of this. Um, one way that they fight back is, is simply by not signing up to move. And so um, we see this throughout the North and the South, but especially in the South, uh, records suggest that well over half of Choctaw people decided that they would rather stay put in Mississippi then move west to these unknown lands. And in fact, there was a clause in their treaty that gave them this right. They were able, by their removal treaty, to take their farms, take title to their farms in fee simple, that is to hold their land in the same way that white Americans held their land, and then to become citizens of the state of Mississippi. Creek peoples also had the same right by the terms of their treaty. And again, thousands and thousands of these people claimed that right. They wanted to remain in Alabama and Mississippi. So that right there was a form of, of resistance that deeply surprised federal policymakers. They thought that only a few dozen or perhaps a hundred people would take advantage of that clause. And they were unhappy to see that there were thousands of people who wanted to remain. So that led to um, all kinds of pressure placed on these people to move. There, sometimes it was um, verbal, but but more more often, um, violence was brought to bear on these families. They were run off the lands. Federal Indian agents would show up and announce that they were going to lose their property, that they wouldn't have title. Other times there were squatters or land speculators who would show up on these farms and run people off at gunpoint. They would whip elderly men and women until they left their, their property. So in short, they drove them off. Now, the, the first year of, um, of deportation proved to be a disaster, and that is in part because it... It um, coincided with a cholera epidemic um, in which thousands and thousands of people lost their lives. This was the first cholera epidemic to strike North America, and it moved up and down the rivers, Mississippi, the Mississippi River on steamboats. And we don't know exactly how many indigenous Americans died, but... Um, certainly in the hundreds and probably into the thousands. And this cholera epidemic, too, ends up shaping the course of the Black Hawk War um, as it's panning out in the uh, Old Northwest and current day Midwest. And you talk a little bit about the interesting comparisons between the responses of Black Hawk 
um, and the responses of John Ross uh, to these attempts at removal and in some cases extermination. Can you elaborate a little bit on the different approaches that Indigenous leaders are taking to retain their homelands? Yes, uh, it, it is a, a kind of, uh, it, it's amazing to see these are so two Indigenous leaders who take the an opposite approach. They're both fighting for their homelands and, and both fighting for their, their people. But John Ross wages what one of his friends calls intellectual warfare. So he hires a lawyer, he goes to court, um, he thinks that he can, if he can lobby effectively in Congress, if he can rally his white allies in the North, if he can, if he can hold together a strong enough political alliance in Washington, that he will eventually be able to overturn the Indian Removal Act of 1830. If that's not successful, he thinks he can go to federal court and win there. And of course, this leads to these famous court cases, uh, Cherokee Nation versus Georgia in 1831 and Worcester v. Georgia in 1832. So he's constantly working in Washington. He's got very powerful allies in D.C. And, and he's almost successful. He manages to keep the Cherokees on their homeland in, you know, through 1837. And it's really not until the final months when the um, United States Army moves into the Cherokee Nation that it becomes clear that the Cherokees are not going to be able to hold on to their lands. So that's one strategy, uh, intellectual warfare. The other strategy is, is actual warfare, and, and that is the strategy that, that Black Hawk pursues. Um, at the end of the day, of course, uh, neither one of these leaders is is successful. Um, and that's the, the, the tragic part of the story. But you mentioned um, cholera and the Black Hawk War. And, and so what happens is when Black Hawk takes up arms, Jackson recognizes that he's going to have to send in reinforcements from the East. And so he, he ships troops from Buffalo through the Great Lakes, they land in Chicago and then cross overland to the Mississippi to the site of the war in the upper Mississippi. And um, unbeknownst to the troops and Winfield Scott, the commanding general, these soldiers are carrying cholera from the east through the Great Lakes and spreading it um, through the Midwest. Eventually, um, the virus makes its way down the Mississippi River, and that's where the Choctaws, who are crossing the Mississippi River at the very same time, encounter the virus. In Section 4, the manner, urgency, and severity of dispossession and deportation is fundamentally changed by financiers and speculators aiming to profit from the rich croplands controlled by Native peoples in the Southeast. What are the economic causes and potential consequences of removal for these capitalists? And what do they tell us about the economic scope of dispossession, both for the United States and within Native nations? Yeah, this is a fascinating part of the story that I that 
that I was surprised to discover. And that is that we, we think of Indian removal largely as a, as a political operation, uh, but it had this financial component and the financial component, it wasn't just that planters wanted Indian lands. It was that there were Wall Street investors who were deeply involved at every turn in Indian removal. And I think it's fair to say that, that in many ways they financed the operation. So right after the Indian Removal Act passed, um, the America's leading financiers, so Wall Street and, and in Boston and, and in Philadelphia, formed joint stock companies and they pulled their capital and began looking for ways to take advantage of the situation. A lot of these folks were already deeply involved in financing cotton cultivation, and they recognized that this was going to open up hundreds of thousands of acres of land, and they wanted a piece of the action. So there were scores of different land companies that were created that were dedicated to separating Native Americans from their farms. Uh, in the book, I write about one of these financiers named Joseph D. Beers, and uh, he was involved at every turn in financing the operation. He he underwrote state bonds that Alabama and Mississippi uh, sold on, on the market in order to raise capital to to hasten the transformation of these lands from indigenous farms to cotton plantations. He purchased tens of thousands of acres of Choctaw and Chickasaw land in Mississippi. He, he also talked to his partners in London to raise capital to fund this transition. So this network of capital extended from, uh, in, from Indian country to Wall Street and then across the Atlantic to London. And, and how far, how much further it extended throughout Europe, I, I did not trace. I think that's a separate story, but, but I did find some evidence that there were investment banks in continental Europe as well that were putting their money into Indian lands in the 1830s. Yeah, and as you say, this economic history of removal is either often glazed over um, or not even really uh, extrapolated at all. Can you talk a little bit more about your research process and uh, why you took on the task to uh, trace this paper trail of um, funding removal? This is often... uh, I think how historians work is you you come across these threads and you begin to pull on them and 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 it's extraordinarily where it's extraordinary where it will lead you. So this was just one of those instances where I ran across some speculators in Mississippi and Alabama and began to follow the money. It it and that led me to New York City and to some of these. Uh, joint stock companies that had been created to to take advantage of the situation. 
And then from there, the challenge was to try to find out who these investors were and if their their private papers still existed. And and there were a lot of dead ends there. I was hoping I, in fact, that um, I, I would I would find more voluminous records. Uh, at the end of the day, I I landed on Joseph D. Beers and his papers um, exist at at Yale University. They're the Edward Curtis papers, but his papers are incorporated into the Curtis papers. Um, and so, and then I began tracing it back to London. But um, but as I said, there's a whole nother story to pursue. And I think someone who who kind of was tackling this from the other side, a, a an economic historian or a historian of banking or finance, I think would find much more to say about this if they started working on it from the other end of the chain. By Section 5, we see that increased pressure from land prospectors, speculators, and financiers, coupled with the growing impatience of U.S. politicians, culminates in a pivotal historical moment where attempts at expulsion become attempts at extermination. Seminoles, Creeks, and Cherokees again resist, though both armed and other forms of resistance fail to keep pro-removal Americans away. Can you talk a bit about how and why the Trail of Tears unfolds and how the Second Seminole War shapes the course of these deportations? Yes. So so I mentioned at the outset that there was always this alliance between these, these cynical planter politicians and these naive reformers who believed that removal actually was the best thing for Indians. And, um, but, but as, and and so they could maintain that fiction and they could maintain that alliance for the first year or two, but it quickly became evident that Native Americans were not going to cooperate. And in fact, the vast majority of them didn't believe that this was the best thing for them. They wanted to remain to remain in their traditional homelands. And as the decade wore on, uh, financiers became increasingly desperate to realize a profit on their investments. Politicians became increasingly frustrated. Jackson wanted to see through the end, the of what really was his signature policy. And yet Native Americans were not moving. And and John Ross, again, stands as as Jackson's kind of great antagonists, taking the matter to the Supreme Court and, in fact, scoring a tremendous victory there in, in 1832. But by 1834, um, Indian reformers have um, grown increasingly frustrated. The federal government wants to complete Indian removal and um, and Indians are ready to take up arms. So there are a series of conflicts, first kind of low-level conflicts. Native peoples are increasingly desperate. A lot of them are being run off their farms by squatters and speculators. So in Alabama especially and in Mississippi, there are Creek and Choctaw people who are close to starvation. They, They simply can't feed themselves any longer. And there are some kind of low-level conflicts. 
in um, 1835 and 1836, it erupts into open warfare in the Seminole Nation in Florida and the Creek Nation in Alabama. And it's at this point that, um, that the federal government gives up all pretense that this is a humanitarian operation. And it begins an operation to eliminate these people from their homelands once and for all, no matter what it takes. And we end up with what in S really is a war of extermination. The, the Creek War in 1836 ends relatively quickly. It lasts only a couple of months. But by the summer of 1836, there are 1,500 Creek men who were walking in chains to transports on the Alabama River. They're going to be put aboard steamboats shipped down river uh, around the Gulf Coast to New Orleans and then upriver and west to Indian Territory. In Florida, the conflict lasts much, much longer. And that is because the federal government has, the U.S. Army is unfamiliar with the landscape and has an extraordinary, extraordinarily difficult time fighting in the malarial swamps and low-lying swamps of Florida. So the Second Seminole War lasts straight through 1842. But by the late 1830s, uh, Americans are admitting to themselves that this is a war of extermination. What had begun as a, at least superficially, a benevolent or philanthropic operation had become a war to exterminate these people. And at the same time of the Second Seminole War, we see a huge, huge rise in mass deportations, especially out of the Cherokee Nation. Um, can you talk a little bit about how these ramp up um, and what the Cherokee experience is going westward, uh, being forced off their homelands? Yeah, so the, the Cherokees... Uh, at least some of the Cherokees and John Ross, especially, as I mentioned, held out hope until the final months. Ross thought that perhaps he would be able to turn the tide in Congress, that the Cherokees would be able to remain. And even some white politicians began to suggest that, yes, it was possible. Perhaps there was a, a senator in Tennessee who said, in fact, um, we would have been happy or at least willing to allow the Cherokees to retain their homelands in Eastern Tennessee. These were not the most valuable lands. You couldn't really grow cotton on them. Um, So there was this, the window remained open until the final months that it was, there was this chance that they could have remained there. At the end of the day, as we all know, the the Cherokees um, lost, uh, Georgia was ramping up the pressure. They wanted to really just eliminate every final presence of Native peoples in in the Southeast, and especially the presence of the Cherokees in the northernmost part of Georgia. So finally, uh, federal troops invade the Cherokee Nation, 
And and this is a um, this is a kind of rapid operation. So it's not the kind of long drawn out and really deadly warfare that that we find in in Florida. The federal troops and state militia fled the Cherokee Nation and uh, and round up virtually all Cherokees in the space of just a few weeks. And then they hold them, they place them in these holding camps in the summer and fall of 1838. And there are three large camps um, in, in the South uh, holding thousands of people. And they're stuck there through the summer months. Disease is rampant, malnutrition, hundreds of people die. And then in the fall, these malnourished people are um, travel by several different routes westward. Some of them Small numbers go by steamboat. The vast majority end up walking hundreds of miles um, northwest through Nashville, um, crossing through the southern tip of Illinois, and then turning south, eventually reaching Indian territory. So hundreds of people die. There are different ways to, to calculate the number of fatalities, the records, the existing records that we have are not perfect, um, but perhaps as many as 3,500 people end up dying in 1838. After the final mass deportations in the late 1830s and early 40s, and the conclusion of the Second Seminole War, the numbers of expulsion begin to crystallize. Indian removal in the Southeast, and all it entailed, was a massive undertaking, culminating in millions of dollars both made and lost. How did you come about estimating how much the federal government and also state governments uh, and other investments in removal ended up costing the United States? Yeah, there, there are lots of different ways to estimate um, the losses to indigenous Americans and, and the profits to white planters and investment bankers. Um, and we could argue about the, the, the merits of these, these various methods. Um, but I think regardless of the specifics of this, um, what's clear is that this was a, a, um, massive, massive, um, the, the cost to indigenous Americans was tremendous and it lasted for generations and generations. So, um, what I did was calculate, um, how much Americans received for selling their lands and how much speculators received for selling you know, those profits that the speculators took, that was money um, that really belonged to Native Americans because they had sold unwillingly and under duress. So if you calculate that difference, it turns out to be um, millions of dollars. I, I think the in the case of the Choctaws, the amount they lost was a equivalent to the capitalization of, of one of the three largest corporations that then existed in the United States. So this is the kind of um, 
extraction of wealth that will resonate for generations and generations. It's, it's, it's losing a multi-generational inheritance in the space of a single year. And in a mere few years after deportation is complete, slavery almost entirely fills these lands made vacant by forced deportations. This intersection between the expansion of slavery and the forced, often violent removal of indigenous peoples is at the core of your book. How can historians continue to refine our understanding of the developmental connections between the expansion of slavery and the ongoing removal of indigenous communities across the continent? Right. This is really an important point that that you mention here, and and that is just the 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 connection, the deep connection between Indian removal and the expansion of slavery. So one of the things I do in the book is just to map what these lands look like in the decade after Indian removal. These regions that had been um, dedicated to indigenous farming, that had been hunting grounds or edge zones that native peoples had exploited for generations, in the space of only five or 10 years were clear cut and where thousands of native peoples had had raised their families. Now we had tens of thousands of enslaved African-Americans laboring on cotton plantations. So it's the heart of the deep South. And it's important to keep in mind that um, it's important to keep in mind that this region that we think of as the kind of core of the Confederacy only existed for 10 or 20 years. Most of Alabama and Mississippi was Indian country through the 1830s. So, um, you know, these are connections that we need to continue to explore I wrote a kind of um, general overview of this transformation, but I think there's a lot more work to be done at the local level. The land records that exist are quite extraordinary, and it's amazing that the federal government, for all of its incompetence, produced thousands and thousands of pages of records in the 1830s about Indian removal. We have maps that show specifically where Choctaw families lived. And I think it would be possible to do more local studies to kind of follow what happens, um, not to just to the families as they move west, but what happens to these pieces of land? What is being grown there 10 or 15 or 20 years later? What slave families are now laboring on those lands? And then what happens to those lands post-emancipation? I think it would be fascinating to do a kind of long-term local study, just taking um, one small plot of land in Mississippi that had belonged to, to Choctaws, say, in 1830. Well, Claudio, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we wrap up, I have one last question for you. What are you working on now? I uh, am finishing up a long-term project to create an online map of the population in in North America between 1500 and 1800. So this map will 
showed decade by decade the changing native African and European populations. You can zoom in and zoom out. You can put it in motion to watch this demographic transformation take place. You will be able to um, define uh, a polygon, draw a polygon on the map and return population counts and see in a line graph how the population in within that defined polygon changed over this 300-year period. So this is something I've been working on for many years. I now have an NEH grant to finish it, and it should be launched in the spring of 2021. Claudia, that sounds like another really important project. I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Take care. Thanks, you too.